As we open God's word, let's pray and ask him. Our Father in heaven, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We open our mouths and pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. Make your face shine upon your servants and teach us your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And you can find that between uh, the, book of Dan- the book of Daniel and the book of Joel. And uh, for the few times that I've been given the privilege to help preach on a Sunday morning here, it's been wonderful to go through the first two chapters of Hosea. And so if you'd like, if you haven't heard the first two, you could uh, find the recording online. And so as we continue to chapter 3, we see once again that amazing section of God's mercy uh, and grace and his unfailing love. And so as we turn now to Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, let's read it. People of God, hear now God's holy word. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another by another man, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Hosea chapter 3 is argued to be uh, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible uh, because in just five verses, Bible readers recognize that this small section is just packed with the richness and clarity of the gospel along with the future hope for God's people. And so you see, the Lord doesn't wait until the end of Hosea's book to pronounce his mercy and grace to unfaithful Israel. Because as you read the prophecies of Hosea, it may seem like a book full of curses and judgment from chapters 1 to 14 with very little hope for a nation that's headed for doom. And that's maybe the challenge of reading Hosea in the way that it's presented. Yet the Lord still reveals that glimmer of hope to a people that appear hopeless. Because it's already in chapter 1 that we see a glimmer of hope brought forward in the midst of imminent exile. If you remember in chapter 1, right after the Lord commands the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute, and then have children with the names of judgment, the Lord uh, suddenly reverses the curse, be, suddenly reverses the curse before chapter one ends. 
And because even though Israel has broken really the national covenant in the land, followed by the pronouncements of curses, the Lord never forgets his covenant with Abraham. The Lord never forgets that eternal promise which extends far beyond national Israel that the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea and that God's people from every nation, tongue, and tribe will be uh, gathered under one head. And that's why the children's names are reversed in the end, at the end of chapter 1, from no mercy, not my people, to now you are my people You have received mercy because it is the Lord who will create a new people for himself, not on the basis of the people's covenant keeping, but on the basis of his covenant keeping. And then in chapter 2, we saw that same cyclical pattern of judgment and salvation where the Lord charges Israel for her unfaithfulness. And he sends curses in verses 1 to 13 on the basis of the national covenant again and calls her unfaithful mother. But then in the latter half of chapter 2, we see a change in the Lord's tone, don't we? We see that change when Grace is introduced once again from verses 14 to 23 where the Lord speaks tenderly and he speaks kindly with sweetness to the bride. When the bridegroom speaks to his bride, he he promises that I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And so it's it's these great reversals from judgment to grace in chapters 1 to 2 that we see at work work because of that really overarching covenant of grace that the Lord will never break. And and so now as we arrive in chapter 3, we see the Lord reveal his grace again, but this time he adds another dimension of grace. And it's the grace that comes with a great cost. It's the grace that requires great sacrifice on the Lord's end. Because in chapters 1 to 2, the Lord was simply promising that this is what my renewed bride looks like. But it's here in chapter 3, we see a much clearer picture of redemption where the Lord shows us this is how I redeem my bride and this is how I purify her and restore her. And so, beloved, the central message of Hosea chapter 3 can be summarized in this way, that since Christ redeems a people at such a, his people at such a great cost, our redeemed lives are to bear the fruit of that loving and faithful commitment to our God. Since, let me repeat that. Since Christ redeems his people at such a great cost, Our redeemed lives are to bear the fruit of that loving and faithful commitment to our God. And that's the love of Christ, isn't it? He is the one who accomplishes the redemption for God's people. To redeem us, to restore us, and to renew us that we may reflect that same love and commitment to our covenant-keeping Lord. And so how do we see the Lord reveal that in our passage? Well, we see that uh, he promises his redeeming love in three ways. First, the price paid, the purification needed, 
And then finally, the promise of restoration. The price paid, the purification needed, and then finally, the promise of restoration. And first, we see the price paid. And we see how this truth unfolds in verse 1, in which the Lord commands the prophet Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now, the prophet Hosea was already introduced to us in chapter 1, and he was already commanded by the Lord to do very hard things, very difficult things. And first, he is to prophesy to unfaithful Israel. And then second, he is to marry Gomer, uh, a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. And it's Hosea's broken marriage which becomes an analogy of the Lord's marriage with Israel, right? To expose unfaithful Israel and to expose Israel's whoredom in the land for their idol worship and forsaking the Lord, And we're not given the full uh, story of Hosea's marriage life, but we can imagine that Gomer, as an adulteress, would have on many occasions slipped out of the house, right? She would leave her husband and children just to satisfy her lust. And she sleeps around with other men other than her husband. She pursues them. She tracks them down, for this is what occupies her mind and her heart. And she believes the lie that these are my true lovers. These are my lovers who provided for me, who cared for me. And so you can imagine all the heartache and pain that Hosea suffered for all those years. That every time Gomer slips out of the house, Hosea had to find her again and again sleeping with another man, committing the same sin. And she becomes addicted and unstoppable at this point. And and it seems just impossible that she could ever change. And so this was the picture of Israel's whoredom. But just when giving up seems like the only option at this point, the Lord commands Hosea to do something even more difficult than the first We see in verse 1 of chapter 3, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so even though this woman who is an adulteress is not named here, this woman is obviously Gomer. And uh, Gomer is found to be with another man, but the Lord still commands Hosea to love her. Now, the irony here is that how is it possible to love someone who doesn't love you back? Like, how can you love someone who no longer uh, has that emotional attachment? And so what kind of love are we talking about here? Well, if it was just up to Hosea to love Gomer, it wouldn't be enough, wouldn't it? Perhaps even impossible. Because the love that the Lord is commanding Hosea to do isn't the kind of love that Gomer, uh, that that, I mean Hosea, could ever produce. Isn't that kind? It's not the kind of love that's merely emotional, but it's that kind of love that is patterned by the Lord Himself. Because we read there in verse one, Hosea is to love Gomer, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. 
And so you see, it's the love that's really patterned after the Lord's love. And so notice how the Lord's name in the ESV is in all caps. Because it reflects how in the Hebrew, it's that covenantal name of the Lord, Yahweh. And so every time you see our covenant Lord as the subject who loves, it's the Lord who covenantally loves his people. It's the Lord who loves us, not because we are worthy of his love, but because of his divine love and his unbreakable promise. And I like how one commentator comments saying that this love is a technical covenantal term for a relationship of loyalty in which Yahweh's love for his people is noble, unselfish, generous, and protective, while the love of Gomer and Israel for her gods and raising cakes is selfish, indulgent, and pleasure-oriented. And so the Lord is commanding Hosea to display before Israel and, be, and to display before all of us that this is how you are to love Gomer. Because it's a picture of my covenant love that will never fail. Yet this love would come at a great cost. Because Hosea can't simply take Gomer away from the man that she's with. But now in order to take her back, he would literally have to buy her back as if she's being sold in a slave market. And we see in verse 2 that Hosea says, So I bought her. So I bought Gomer. And we wonder, how did she end up like this? Well, we aren't given the facts for how long Gomer has been in this cycle of whoredom and the places that she's been. But now it seems she's gone so deep into her sin And she's nowhere to be found until one day, Hosea had to find out the hard way that she has become a slave, ready to be auctioned off, ready to be sold from the man who may be the auctioneer. And so this is a horrible situation. But that doesn't stop Hosea. And you can imagine as Hosea enters the slave market, he probably didn't recognize her at first because She doesn't look like the woman he first met. And in the ancient world, slaves that were being auctioned off had to be stripped naked. And so there she was, perhaps naked and ashamed, exposed in all her filth. And as one commentator reconstructs the scene, if there was such a bidding that took place, we can imagine as one man starts the bid, he says, 12 pieces of silver. Hosea responds back, 13 pieces of silver. And the other man says, 14 pieces of silver. And then finally, hope, and then Hosea, hoping to win the bid, the bid, he says in verse 2, 15 pieces of silver, and I will include one homer and a lithic of barley. And so the auctioneer, auctioneer looks around, And when no one else could bid any higher, he finally announces the winner sold to the man in the back for 15 pieces of silver to include one homer and lethic of barley. And so Hosea bought Gomer for 15 pieces of silver and adds the barley, which really amounts to about 84 gallons of barley to seal the deal. And what is barley? Barley is just really a grain, which is a staple food in the ancient world. 
And so, as we think about this amazing scene, it's really a picture of redemption, isn't it? It's a picture of our Lord's grace and mercy to redeem his unfaithful people. Because like Gomer and Israel, we too are faced with the daily temptation of spiritual whoredom. We too love our own versions of our gods and without hope our souls are lost. And without a savior, we remain dead in our sins. And yet despite our own sin and rebellion, while we were still sinners, the hope is that the Lord provides a way by fulfilling the picture of redemption through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's he who reveals to us in Matthew 20, 28, that he came to give, us, to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, we're told that we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? With his precious blood, the precious blood of the lamb without blemish or spot. And so you see, beloved, may you trust in that wonderful promise that we see in Hosea, which finds its fulfillment in Christ. Because again, the price that was paid by Christ was not paid by anything else, not by silver or gold, but by his own precious blood. So that in his death, you too may die to sin and that you too may be raised with Christ, both body and soul for eternal life. And so that's our hope, beloved. That's our hope. But really, not only are we to think about the price that was paid for us, we're also called to think about the second truth, which is the purification that's needed for God's people in verses 3 to 4. And it's in verses 3 to 4, we see a parallel again between what Hosea will do to Gomer and what the Lord will do to Israel. And uh, we see that when Hosea bought Gomer and brings her home, the first words Hosea tells Gomer in verse 3, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In other words, Hosea will bring his wife home for her to be exclusively his. However, this scenario isn't the kind of rekindled honeymoon where the husband and wife could right away enjoy their conjugal rights yes she yes she will live with him yes he will take care of her but there are conditions right she is not to sleep with anyone she is not to belong to another man in the same way we see Hosea himself pledges I too will not sleep with you for a period of time Because not unless you've been purified for many days by the complete removal of your adulterous ways will you enjoy the full blessings of marriage that was lost. And so what's the significance of this scene? And, and, And why does Gomer go through this kind of purification period? Well, the significance is that it parallels really what the Lord will do to Israel in verse 4. Because the same way that Gomer is to dwell for many days under this condition, uh, so too the children of Israel is to dwell for many days under the Lord's condition. In other words, it's really this waiting period in which Israel is to experience for many days without king or prince 
without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And so this prophecy came to fruition when the Lord disciplines Israel, right? He disciplines or impurging everything that his people had used and abused to defile the land where they committed whoredom in the land. And so for a time, they would have no rulers, no king, no prince, no temple, no household gods. And all of it must be removed for many days. And we begin to see this period of cleansing and removal, especially when uh, Israel in the north then in Judah, and then Judah in the south were eventually exiled from the land. And the things that they've used and abused, the idols that they've trusted in, the things that they depended on other than the one true God were finally stripped away. And as one theologian comments, even though after 70 years in exile, when Israel physically returns to the promised land, and, and then they try to rebuild the temple, things would never return to its previous glory. Because even though Israel physically returned to the land, their hearts were still in spiritual exile. And so the purification is needed. It isn't merely the external removal of the things that they once trusted, but rather it must be a complete renewal of the heart. And so this period of waiting for many days in the Old Testament era builds the anticipation and expectation of God's people that finally the one who would come to dwell among us to redeem his people from spiritual exile is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who would once and for all pay the ultimate blood price. He is the one who would now purify the hearts of his people. But more importantly, he is the one who would bring in the restoration. And that's finally the truth that we see in our passage, isn't it? Which is the promise of restoration. Because once the waiting period in verse 4 is over, we see a new beginning in verse 5 in which the Lord promises that afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And when is this period? When will the children of Israel return and seek the Lord? Well, we know it's that period that began at the first coming of Christ, isn't it? Right? Because who is David their king? If David died centuries ago, does that mean that David, the son of Jesse, will come back? No. Because the prophets look forward to a Davidic king, a much greater and better king who would forever reign in true justice and righteousness. And we know that it's none other than our Messiah, isn't it? The Davidic king found in our Lord Jesus Christ who became the God-man who dwells among us. And so the hope about this prophecy is that we're reading this right now in the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because the latter days that we see here is the era that we're living in right now. And the latter days that we're living in is that time period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Because when the prophets like Hosea spoke about the latter days... They anticipated the new creation blessings that would accompany the Messiah's coming. 
And so even though we may feel like the new creation is still somewhere in the distant future, the truth is we are already experiencing that right now. We're already experiencing a taste of the new creation blessings that are entering into these last days. Because, in, because the truth is, with Christ's resurrection and ascension, it marked the era of the last days where he begins his new creation work, right? So that by his spirit, you and I have been recreated by his resurrection power so that now you can truly fear him, so that now you have the power to resist sin, so that now you have the mind to think with truth, and so that now you have the confidence to face the challenges in this present evil age. Knowing that Jesus is our champion in the end, isn't it? And so, beloved, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing to know that we're given his new creation power right now? And so, beloved, in closing, to know that we're living right now in the latter days really is to give us this great confidence, isn't it? Right? It should give us great joy and hope knowing that whenever you feel weak, whenever you struggle with temptation and doubt, whenever you face the reality of suffering death around you, know, beloved, that you can trust our Savior who who paid the ultimate price for you, who continues to purify and sanctify your souls, and finally, a Savior who who restores you to new life in the new creation. And so, beloved, may that be your hope, both in life and in death, in these last days. Amen. Let us pray. And I'm going to pray a prayer from John Calvin after his lecture upon Hosea chapter 3, and I think, which I think is beautiful. Grant, Heavenly Father, grant Almighty God that we with minds raised above the scene of this world may at the same time cherish the hope which you constantly set before us so that we may feel fully persuaded that we are loved by you, however severely you may discipline us. May this consolation so support and sustain our souls that we may patiently endure whatever chastisement you may lay upon us. May we ever hold fast the reconciliation which you have promised to us in Christ your Son. Amen.